Up next on Book TV's Afterwards, Jamil Giovanni examines the rise in violence committed by young men around the world. He's interviewed by Brooklyn Law School professor Bennett Capers. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. So, Giovanni, Giovanni, Mr. Giovanni, is that how I should call you? You can call me Jamil. I will call you Jamil. Yeah. I just have to say, it's such a privilege to be able to sit across from you and talk to you about your book, Why Young Men, uh, thoroughly enjoyable. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and say, I read this book in one sitting, um, and it was so fascinating to sort of read about your journey from sort of growing up in a segregated neighborhood sort of being very close to the edge, mm-hmm. uh, becoming a criminal, uh, being deemed an illiterate, and then going on to community college, going on to, like, university, Yale Law School. Yeah. Then sort of, you know, becoming sort of this youth activist and traveling around the world and really about your journey of trying to figure out why young men sort of get attracted to violence and get radicalized. So I just found it fascinating Congratulations. Thank you very much. Appreciate uh, it. So I'm going to ask, I guess I want to start off with this. Okay. Uh, what was the impetus for this book? If you could sort of tell me about the impetus. Yeah, I was, uh, like most of the rest of the world, I observed uh, this massive terrorist attack in Paris in November 2015. Uh, it was organized by a few young men who had grown up in Europe, mostly in Belgium and in France. And they turned against Europe. I mean, these were European men who decided they wanted to join a foreign enemy, which was the Islamic State or ISIS, and attack their own hometowns. So 500 people were killed or injured. And I, I saw this, and I was, I was not a person who had ever thought about jihadist violence or terrorism before, but I just saw these young guys, and I thought to myself, you know, they grew up in a neighborhood not very different from mine. Uh, a lot of newcomers, a lot of immigrants. They were second-generation Europeans. Uh, they had been in and out of criminal lifestyles. They'd seen their friends go through all sorts of trauma. And they were very much people who I could have grown up with, and yet their life wound up in this like place that I had such a hard time understanding. So I wanted to know what, like, what led to that. And in them I saw a lot of emotion and frustration that I think is relatable to young men of all sorts of different backgrounds and all sorts of different places. And I wanted to write a book that might explain why we lose young men to movements like that and and what we might learn from their experiences that tell us about the lives of other people, that they're not these fringe young men who can teach us nothing, but rather their lives are the result of a lot of things that everyday people can relate to. So, Jamil, I'm going to cut to the chase. Your book is titled, Why Young Men? What's the answer? Well, yeah. is, is there a simple answer? Or is it more complicated? I, I don't think there's a simple answer, although I do think that to the extent there is, let's say, an answer I can give in, in a concise time frame or in less than 300 pages, let's yes. say, I think the answer is that we have violent movements that are tapping into a unique sort of frustration that young men are experiencing. I believe that we have a crisis of masculinity happening at the moment, where what it means to be a man is changing. And a lot of boys and young men, I'm 31 years old, I think of myself as being in the middle of this generation that is trying to figure out, well, if men aren't supposed to be the breadwinners of their family anymore, and they're not supposed to be having all these privileges that women don't have, and now we share the labor market, and we share uh, responsibility to earn money with women, and uh, what does all that mean then for what, I, what, what, what is my unique identity as a man? And... As my generation is figuring that out, they're looking online and they're looking in the streets and they're looking to their peer group and we're finding answers that I don't think are helpful. Some answers that are good, but some answers that are not. And I wanted to write a book that would hopefully provide some of that answer, but also to show why violent movements are so good at trying to answer that question and giving giving meaning to young men who are looking for that answer. And I have to tell you, I, I appreciate the short answer, but I also recognize you give a much more complete laid out, like that's what the book is for, that's what the book yeah. is about, and that's why it's so interesting. I still found myself asking, I, I, I think I found myself asking questions a little bit differently, though, as I was reading your book. Like, part okay. of me was wondering, your book is titled again, Why Young Men? And I was thinking, well, why not young women? Mm. Because they're growing up in the same environments, often segregated environments, 
Um, so that might be a different way of thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, is it about is it something about the way we're raising boys and something about the way we're not raising girls? Like, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, on that's this? a great question. I mean, so young men. And there's also a question of why isn't it just why men or why yeah. not older men, right? Yes, or yes. like, and, and so the young male population is so disproportionately involved in violence and in violent movements. So part of the desire to focus on young men was to look at, well, why is this the group that is kind of the backbone of a lot of this, this type of violence? Uh, and, and, in, and in looking at that group, I also wanted to explore, are there things about this current generation of young men, the generation I belong to, that are unique, right? And I think that the introduction of social media and that type of technology is an example where as a young man who's trying to figure out what is my identity, where do I belong, how do I fit into the world around me, mm -hmm. we are looking at, there are new technologies that I think are pulling us towards some of these violent movements. And that is partly what makes this generation of young men unique and why we have a unique sort of challenge. We're also living in a time where I think, you know, the way families have been structured and the assumptions we've made about what a good, healthy family dynamic looks like is being questioned a lot, yeah. uh, to be honest. And I think in ways that are not healthy. I mean, it's, I find it weird that, for instance, I think for a politician, not all politicians, but some, to go on TV and say that boys need their dads, I think would be seen as controversial in some circles. Yeah. And if we're one of the first generations who's living at a time where that's a controversial idea, yeah. then I think that I want to explore why. Like, why is that? And, and is it true? Because I, as you know, in the book, I talk a lot about fatherhood yeah. and the importance of those masculine role models. And I think that cultural pushes to question the importance of that are wrong. Yeah, so I, I, I sort of want to push back a little. I find sure. this topic fascinating, and yeah. I, I think a lot about gender issues, masculinity issues, feminist issues. Um, so one, one way of thinking about this is, uh, you know, we, we give little boys toy guns. We sort of are teaching them sort of to value sort of violence and, you know, the whole conversation around toxic max masculinity. We're teaching all of that at a young age. Like, maybe we should just get rid of that like like maybe there are too many men in the picture yeah i don't I, so this is just a more radical <laughs> way of thinking sure. about what you're thinking uh, about well so i don't think that men being involved in their families necessarily has to accompany you know toy guns right i mean there's a there's another way for men to role model masculinity and whether they should be doing that differently is a different question than whether they should be there in the first place, right? Yeah. Like, so, so I, I take the point that, you know, there are ways for a present father to be harmful, for example. Yeah. Having your dad around isn't necessarily good. Your father could be an alcoholic. He could be a bad person. He could treat your mom poorly. Like, and, and in my book, I talk about the snapshots of my life where my father was around, and often those are not pleasant experiences. Sometimes I wonder if there was more damage for the little bit of time he was around than if he had just been gone the whole time, right? But I do think that in the household, and a lot of the psychological research backs this up, that you know, there is a, what I call kind of like a throne of masculinity and a throne of femininity in the household. And what I mean by that is people, children, are looking for this example of like what, how do, what are they supposed to mimic? What are, their, what are they role modeling or, or what are they modeling themselves after? Yeah. And when they don't have a man in the house, a man who can show them that like being a man is not just what you see on TV, but it's also holding your mom's hand and it's being a nice person and it's looking after children and it's paying taxes and it's going to work and it's like it's not just the glamour that we might see on television or on the internet uh, or whether that should be glamorous or not is another story I suppose but that just learning that masculinity looks like that is really really important because what you find I think in when you have high concentrations of men not in the house what you find is I think an over-reliance on pop culture to fill those voids and what, for example, might be seen as entertainment to one group of people is actually seen as like philosophy to another. And I use in my life example and in the lives of many other young men, hip hop, right? Yeah. I mean, hip hop is an incredibly popular, massive business, multi-billion dollar industry. And most of the consumers of that art form treat it as if it's Hollywood entertainment. But if you're a kid where those rappers are not just entertainers, those are your clerics. Yeah. Those are your father figures. Those are the icons you look up to. Hip-hop takes a completely different meaning, and I would argue a negative one, when you're expecting it to answer all of those questions that a man is supposed to be answering for you. So, yes, so I do, I do take the point that there are ways for masculinity to be negative, but that does not mean that we shouldn't strive to have positive masculine role models around our boys.
So if we could go back to these role models, you yeah. sort of opened the book talking about your father yes. sort of as an absent figure. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so my father was, a, was an immigrant to Canada from Kenya. He um, you know, came to Canada for a wet, to attend a wedding uh, where he met my mom, who's a white Canadian. They did what young people do when they meet at weddings, and I come along. And so you know, they try to make a situation work. I think of my father as a, as a really tragic figure in the sense that his life is incredibly inspiring up until that point. You know, he was born an orphan, re-orphaned because of anti-black prejudice in, among his adoptive family in Kenya. And he, uh, but he pulled himself up and did what I, I think is incredibly difficult, which is he put himself in a school, he learned a trade, and he worked his way up from getting an apprenticeship in the Hilton Hotel in Nairobi all the way to the Hilton Hotel in London. And I, I think about that, man, and I'm like, wow, that is an inspiring story. But when it came to the family dynamics, when I come along, when my younger sisters come along, and he's trying to be a husband and a dad, it just falls apart. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that as an orphan, he had never seen a family function. There, just being, like, I think people who have healthy families don't appreciate how counterintuitive it can be to sit on a couch with your wife and your kids and to feel comfortable in that space. Yeah. And he was a man who didn't know how to do that. And, and, I, and I saw that in him as a kid. I saw that, I see that when I look back at him now as an adult. So by the time he leaves my life, right, and, I, and I'm a teenager and he's not around anymore, I just, I kind of accept that, I, 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 although I have maybe good reason to be angry toward him, and there are days where I still feel that anger, um, but I also kind of understand to some extent what he was battling just to be there. Yeah. yeah. So part of your book is about, you know, the repercussions of not having a father figure. Um, how do we sort of find replacements for that? And I'm thinking not obviously of just you, but, you know, I was reading someplace like 23% of the children in the U.S., are basically living in single-family households, which are basically mothers most of the time. And I'm imagining that's just a fraction of what's going on because then you also have families like how you grew up, where the father's physically there but not really emotionally there. Yeah. So are there substitutes? Uh, one thing I kept wondering as I was reading your book, um, were there other possible sort of male role models around or was that completely absent like i yeah i i have uh i was thinking okay well you know you know i had the boy scouts so i was thinking i had like you know church group leaders or 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 whatever but then at the same time i was realizing i've heard so many stories from students law students who tell me i'm the first black male teacher they've ever had yeah um so is there a problem with just not having enough sort of male figures, male figures of color, other than sort of the gangster rap individuals you're talking about? That's a great question. So, so certainly if you have a you know, robust set of community services where there are organizations like the Boy Scouts or you know, mentorship programs or, or, or you know, athletic programs where you can find these male role models in different places, that, that's fantastic. Unfortunately, I grew up in a place that didn't have that. It was a very new suburb that had been urbanized, particularly for this immigrant population that had moved to Canada. So we didn't have a lot of those things. And even to this day, I go to my old neighborhood and I meet with the boys at my old middle school and they still don't have those services you know, 20 years later. So that was an unfortunate reality of where I grew up. But I do think that there are plenty of other sources for those father figures or those male role models to emerge. Uh, and where possible, having them in, whether it's at the school as teachers or even just community programs that share the space of a school so that people are seeing more folks come in and out of those doors, I think that's important. I think that having male youth workers is important. Having men who um, participate in other community institutions like churches or mosques or synagogues, that's also incredibly important. I do think that a lot of it is about just male involvement in the lives of kids, that the idea that you can just work and you know earn some money and that's enough to contribute to your family, I think that's an old, and I'm not sure if it was ever a good idea, but it certainly doesn't work anymore. The, the truth is that to give a kid a good life in modern America, you need two incomes in a household. So the, if you're going to download the responsibility to look after kids to women, you're asking them to do two jobs, and I think men need to play a bigger role in doing that job with them. 
So that is the culture shift, I think, whether it's as a, if you're, if, whether it's about contributing to the lives of children as a father or in many other roles, I think that's a responsibility that men need to feel, especially as our economic role is changing because that's an inevitability right now. And as I read your book, since you didn't really have those other men around, you turned to gangster rap. So can you talk a little bit about why gangster rap was so big in your life and, and also it seems like big in the life of lives of your friends? Yeah, I mean, gangster rap is, I mean, the reason why it's so popular to, around the world is because it's, it's the same reason we love gangster movies. We love these outlaw, anti-authority characters, right, who say, you know, this world that's trying to boss you around and tell you you need to do this and do that, like, you don't have to listen to them. You can be, be your own man, right? Yeah, Stand yeah. on your own. So when you're a young person, I think it's natural to find those sort of characters compelling. The difference, though, is that I think for me and a lot of my friends, we looked at those characters and thought, well, you know, we didn't, we didn't fit in at school. We didn't think we were going to get a good job when we were older. Mm-hmm. We didn't even really understand what getting a good job would even look like. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of being an outlaw is especially appealing to a, to a group of young men like that because you don't think this world is designed for you to be successful. So the guy who's rich on TV and never had to go to school, of course you want to be like him because yeah. he didn't have to do the things that seem hard for you to do, if not impossible for you to do, right? Yeah. And so that's what the gangster rappers represented to us, I think. And then on top of that... What they do really well, which I think a lot of violent movements do well, is they echo the anger of young men, right? So if you're frustrated because your dad's not around or you're mad because you don't get to go on vacation, but you see commercials every day about going to Disney World, right? And you're just, you're frustrated that life is not what you wish it was. Then you see a guy on TV or you're hearing his music and he's angry too and he's yelling about things and he's frustrated. It feels like he's speaking your language. And that's a hard language for most adults to speak because the truth is that most people don't feel that same frustration that young men feel. We are a particularly angry group of people. We're high in testosterone. We're high in risk-taking. We're, we're on this pursuit of admiration and respect. And when we, we don't get it, we're mad. And when you hear someone also mad, you're like, yeah, I, I, I feel that. And you feel me. We are, we are tapped into the same frequency. So what's the answer? And I know I asked this question earlier, but I mean the answer with respect to gangster rap, because I could could read that section of your book and think that almost you're saying, oh, what we need to do is sort of police gangster rap more and sort of not let young, impressionable teenagers or teenage boys listen to too much gangster rap. I don't know, is that what you were trying to convey, or what, well, what do you pe- think we should do? Or do you think, no matter what, it's going to be something. If it's not gangster rap, it's going to be something else. Well, I, I suppose it depends on what we mean by the we in this situation, right? So yeah. if we're talking about, like, should we be making, like, laws that, that bar gangster rap? No. Okay. Should you, as a parent, maybe discourage your kid from listening to violent music? Yeah, I think that's the case. Okay. So on a, on a cultural level, I think that we should be mindful of, like, what those messages are. One of the things that I, that I point out a lot um, in my work is that, you know, when we talk about other forms of violence, so let's say like when a white supremacist attacks a mosque, for instance, often the narrative goes back to rhetoric. Like, you know, we have these politicians saying this and this, and that's why someone hates immigrants and Muslims, and that's why he picked up a gun and attacked a mosque. And I do think rhetoric is, is an important piece of the puzzle in understanding these things. So if that's the case, then a billion-dollar industry that is built on young black men talking about guns... Is that rhetoric not relevant to the homicide rate in this country? When a, man, when a young man like Nipsey Hussle is killed in Los Angeles, maybe the fact that he talked about death and killing and his blue bandana and being a crip for his entire career, maybe that's relevant, right? And, yeah. and that I, I wish that we granted that form of violence the same um, respect. And what I mean by that is that it, it's equally philosophical, that the young man in inner-city America who is picking up a gun, even if it's to defend himself because he's scared someone else might shoot him first, that man, there's a philosophy behind that act. And that philosophy is not solely attributable to gangster rap, certainly. But being surrounded by echoes of that is, is doesn't help either, right? And that's mostly what I, what I want to get across when I write about gangster rap, when I talk about it, is... Look, I'm at a point in my life now where I can listen to a Kendrick Lamar talk about what it was like to grow up in, 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 a, in a gang-ridden neighborhood, and I appreciate the sociological analysis of it. 
But when I was 17 years old, that's not how I looked at it. I thought Kendrick Lamar was a prophet, mm-hmm. right? Not him, because I'm older, but the equivalent of Kendrick Lamar. Yeah. I thought they were showing me how to live my life. Yeah. And if that's what you think is happening in the life of a young person, I don't think you should say, well, yeah, but Kendrick Lamar is making a good point. It's like, it might be a good point to you, but to him that means something else. And that's the distinction I fight to make. And I have to say one reason why I found your book so provocative and fascinating is, and I'm sure you get this, I'm sure you've heard this before, so many of your arguments sound very conservative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you could you could easily be on Fox News. Like parents, I have need, been on pa- Fox, Fox you know, News. Pa- yeah. par- parents need to like you know take that gangster rap away and you know spend more time with their children, and that's the problem. But at the same time, you also make sort of more progressive arguments as well. So it's an interesting balance. And I uh, yeah, I, I do I do think that one you're absolutely right that you know depending on the piece of my book someone focuses on, I could absolutely be considered a a right-wing evangelist, or I could yes. be considered, uh, you know, a, a progressive, pro-immigrant. Per- I mean, it just, I, and I think that, you know, part of that stems from the fact that I I really spend my time with young men, yeah. right? Like, I, 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 I crafted these arguments, and I wrote this around the people that I'm talking about. Yeah. And so when you're around those people, you don't easily get put in a box, because reality is not designed to fit on one end of the political spectrum. The truth is that, Trying to solve these problems means being very humble, I think, about what we don't know how to do well. And I am pretty disappointed, I think, with the state of conversation around these things from all ends of the political spectrum. And so a lot of what I have to say, I think, recognizes that I don't think that Democrats are doing a good job on any of these issues. I don't think Republicans are doing a good job on any of these issues. Whoever is most willing to hear me out and maybe make a change, I want to talk to that person. So I have to ask you one more question about role models before yes. I move on to the next thing. Uh, I think you said you're 31? 31, yes. Because uh, as I was reading your book, I was trying to imagine what, was, what life must have been like around the specific time you were growing up. Because you kept saying, like, you know, there were no real, like, male role models of color, but you had all this gangster rap. And I kept thinking, I wonder how different your life would have been or if you'd grown up. Uh, when Obama was president. If that had been, your formative years had been while President Obama was the U.S. president. Because I, I think that it's would have counterbalanced question. sort of the gangster rap. I, no? I, I think you're right. Um, especially because, you know, President Obama, by the time he came along, I was like, oh, this is another, like, half-white, half-Kenyan dude. Yeah. Like, I... I I wasn't even thinking that, yeah, but yes. But I, I appreciated his example a lot. Um, and it came at a time where, you know, for example, I'm not sure I would have gone to Yale Law School without someone like him because I had never thought about Ivy League schools. Um, you know, and then when someone like him comes along, you're like, oh, he went to Harvard. Like, you know, not that crazy maybe yeah. for you to go to school like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's a great point. I do wish, I think President Obama has moments where he's, delivering messages to young men that I really strongly applaud, like with his My Brother's Keeper initiative, and he talks about the importance of fatherhood and culture and community strength. But he also can sometimes send a bit of a mixed message where he's telling a group of young men that in Oakland, for example, and then you know he's taking like selfies with Jay-Z in the next moment. And not that Jay-Z is a, a toxic figure necessarily, but just I don't think perhaps for political expediency, President Obama was as clear about the morality of these things as I wish he was. And I think in his post-presidential life, he's been a bit clearer because I guess doesn't need a Jay-Z endorsement <laughs> anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 I appreciated the moments, like in the Morehouse College speech, for example, where I thought he was tapping into uh, a, um, a wealth of, of wisdom about... Yeah how much potential exists in black boys that we often don't see and reminding them that it's yeah. it's to some extent their responsibility to make sure that they show that to people yeah. right yeah one thing i've wondered about i don't i don't know if you've had any have any thoughts on this i've always wondered if maybe barack obama has had even more influence simply showing what fatherhood is like like yeah. he models himself as a father like yeah. you're constantly seeing him with his daughters, and that has probably had a tremendous impact on especially black men 
um, around the world. Like, all of a sudden, fatherhood is cool. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, um, you know, we talked about technology creating opportunities for negativity with violent movements, but technology also created some wonderful opportunities with President Obama because we saw more of him than any president ever before. He was on Facebook, he was on Twitter, he was on Instagram. We saw him sitting uh, courtside at a basketball game with his wife, Michelle. We saw him with his daughters. Like, it was so visible and I think so powerful. And a lot of it was taken for granted. I mean, we didn't, I think, appreciate it until we have a president now who is certainly far removed from what I would call traditional family values and how he's conducted himself and how he speaks and his his checkered history. Yeah. And uh, now I think we look back and say, oh, you know what? Like, maybe that was a part of the Obama era we should have appreciated more is that he was sending that message out to people and certainly might have meant something unique to black boys, but I think all boys need to see a president who's standing beside his wife and is proud to, to be her husband. Yeah. yeah. And in love. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so much for your book is sort of exploring about, you know, exploring young men and radicalization, but, and I want to, I want to get to all of that yep. in more detail. Um, but first I want to talk even more about, you okay um and your experience uh because you tell this really interesting sort of um story about a segment in your life when you really came close to you know joining the other side you were yeah. on the brink uh you actually came close to buying a gun yep. at one point if i remember yep. um in fact um and you sort of described that as a turning point i did and yeah. it's such a turning point i was thinking i might have you read Sure, uh, yeah, a passage. Um, so I just marked out uh, the bottom of page 44. Okay. I thought that was such a moving uh, passage. Yeah, so this is from a chapter titled Capacity to Aspire, and the passage goes like this. I went to one of my closest friends at school and asked him to locate a gun for me. A few days later, he confirmed he could get one, quoted me a price and told me that I need to make sure I was serious since it would take some work from his friends to get it. I told him that I'd get back to him. That day I went home from school and cried. I'm not sure why I cried, although crying wasn't rare for me in those days, but I was scared. I knew I was about to cross a line that would be very difficult to return from. I was close to trapping myself in a life that would make no owning a gun normal. It was a decision that would have justified the way the police already treated me and people who looked like me. It would have also betrayed my mom's trust. It might have caused her to lose faith in me altogether, and she was the only good thing in my life. The gun never came up in conversation with my friend again. I assume he forgot about it. Maybe he didn't really want to help me get one in the first place. Or possibly he knew how bad a decision it would be for me to cross that line and was relieved I never asked him about it a second time. Such a great passage. Tell me, what did the gun, like, why was the gun so important? What did the gun symbolize to you? The gun represented uh, seriousness to me. You know, that I had spent a lot of my, my time in high school talking about wanting to be a gangster, wanting to be like these, like, Hollywood figures that we looked up to and saw on television. And I wanted to buy this gun to show people, yeah, I'm serious about this, and I, and I want you to welcome me into your networks. I want to earn money like you guys. I want to be one of you. My best friend at the time was in out of jail, and I thought this would be a way to maybe show him that I'm not just a young kid anymore. I'm, a, yeah. I'm becoming a man now. Yeah. Um, what it meant to me, though, at the time where I was actually having to decide on whether I get the gun is... Now, I had seen what owning a gun does to people. It's a slippery slope. You know, you own a gun, and then you have problems with people who own guns, and then you're carrying a gun around just to feel safe. And the likelihood of being caught with it at some point is incredibly high. And I'd seen that ruin people's lives. And so when I say that I was scared uh, of buying that gun, that's what I was feeling. I was feeling this sort of... It both represented seriousness to me in both ways. It was serious as far as... I thought it might make me seem like a real gangster, but it was also a seriousness of, do you actually want to be a real gangster? Is that the life you actually want to commit yourself yeah. to? Um, and I, remind, I, I tell that story and I remind my people of it all the time because it also shows how close I came to my life being potentially completely different. If I bought that gun, 
and I got caught with it the next day, I could have been in prison and maybe never would have become who I am now. I may have never gone to university or law school or anything. And, and reminding people of how close those moments are is important because a lot of what I try to champion in my work is the idea of like second chances, that young men make mistakes, and especially those who are incarcerated in, in, in the United States where there's a lot of people and a lot of people in what I would consider dubious circumstances. And what I mean by that is in neighborhoods that are over-policed and, and people who are sentenced differently. And, and so when you know that's happening and when you know how much potential can be lost with these kind of split-second decisions, then you better create a system that creates second chances because there could be a whole lot more people like me in this country if we, if we gave people the chance to live up to their potential. And that's where you switch from Fox News to MSNBC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so uh, if I recall, it's also around this time period that uh, you take a test. I think maybe it's tenth grade, and yes. you know they're like, "Oh, you're illiterate," yeah. uh, and that's almost like another turning point. You're like, "Okay, I better buckle down and study." You end up graduating high school, going to community college, transferring to the university, um, but then there's also because you know obviously. Dozens of things are happening at the same time. You also sort of talk about your friendship with Lucas. Yes. Uh, which is going on, I guess, around the same time all of this is going on. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, I was considered illiterate uh, in high school. Um, and thankfully, you know, that didn't hold me back as much as it might have because I had a mother who made sure that I uh, didn't give up on graduating from high school. But it, that was a very discouraging experience. And frankly... Um, you know, if I lived through that ten, ten times, nine out of ten, I might have dropped out of high school after that. I mean, it was it was very devastating. So, my friend uh, Lucas, who is this, you know, I our friendship starts, and I say in the book that it felt like my father kind of passed me on to him because he introduced us, and then my father was gone, and I had this older friend who was kind of like this this older male role model in my life, but he was. You know, was not living a life that I think we would want anyone to mimic, right? I mean, he was in and out of jail. He was having a hard time himself. When he was incarcerated, uh, when during my first year of university, and this was after I kind of had a, a turnaround where I was able to, you know, re-engage with school and 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 have, get good enough grades to get into community college and eventually kind of progress academically. Um, going through that experience meant that I was. Um, seeing my life change very rapidly and my friends lives were not and so i really was trying to figure out how do i help someone like lucas because you know i'm in school and my life is getting better i'm starting to see kind of light at the end of the tunnel and yet he's doing the exact same stuff he was doing when i was 15 years old Mm -hmm. um and i i think about him as one of the people who i i wish at that point in my life i knew what i knew now because i wasn't able to help him in fact my efforts to try to reach him when he came out of jail didn't work, and he you know, took it as me criticizing him and judging him and threatened me, and we got into a fight, and we never talked again. Um, now I go and try to find young men like him and hope that, that I've learned something in the last you know, 12 years that might be able to teach them something or at least inspire them to believe in themselves and not take people trying to help them as people who are judging them, right? And I'm sure you've been asked this question before. What do you think the difference is? I mean, it it sounds like, you know, your friend Lucas could have ended up like you. You could have ended up like Lucas. Is it just chance? Like, what what were you able to tap into that he wasn't or vice versa? The biggest thing working in my favor compared to Lucas was that I had not dropped out of school. So despite the challenges I had in being illiterate and all of that... But that I sounds was, like your mother. Yeah. Okay. I was still connected to something. So by the time I'm ready to, to change... And Lucas had these moments, too, where he would come out of jail or he would have some sort of problem with his child's mom and he would say to me, I got to do something different, I want to get my life together. But he was just stuck. Like, he didn't have any institutional connections. He wasn't in school, he wasn't working. It's like, where does someone in that situation find support to become a different person. It's hard, unless you have that in your family, I think. 
Whereas I had that support in school, even a school that I was mad at and didn't like me, the fact that I was there and I could get a diploma and I could move on to community college, that was the biggest difference between us is those moments where I said, oh, I need to change my life, I don't like what I'm doing, I had support to, ter to, to encourage me to be that better person. And that encouragement, like encouragement is an idea that I think we don't explore enough because we, we take it for granted. But, but being able to say to someone like, look, you don't know how great you are yet, and you can be a better person than you think. And even though you might not see it, I see it. And when you're ready, I'm here. Like that is, goes a long way. And I had people in community college say that to me. I had people in university say that to me. Um, and that has been, I think, the biggest difference maker in my ability to have the confidence to try new things and do things that no one in my family had done or no one in my community had done. I, I, you, you, you blaze trails in part when people are showing you the light, right? And having people who kind of show you this is where you go next, like that goes a long way. And is that the capacity to aspire? I think that's the title of that chapter yeah, where you so, say it's a term. Yeah, capacity to aspire is a, is a concept from uh, NYU professor Arjun Apadurai. And a lot of his work is in the context of poverty in India where he's trying to explain how some kids born into poverty make it out of poverty and some kids don't. So I applied that in my life because I think that there are some really rich cultural insights there that you can have two people who have identical families and identical economic circumstances and all of that. But we know that even in neighborhoods that are stigmatized across the United States as being high crime, most kids from those neighborhoods don't commit crimes, right? I mean, most of those kids are doing what they're supposed to do. I mean, I, I, they, might, they need more support than they're currently getting, but they're not breaking laws. They're, they're, they're living their life the right way. And uh, so that, 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 that minority of kids who are exposed to crime and then participate in it. That's, I think, explained by understanding those cultural differences and, and, and how their decision-making intersects with their environmental circumstances. So I'm going to skip ahead. Okay. Uh, you know, you go to Yale Law School, you do uh, some teaching at Osgoode Hall Law School. How do you get involved in youth sort of activism? Like, yeah, that's a good question because a lot of it never felt deliberate. Like it just felt kind of like when I was a student at Yale, I was in some sense almost like sickened by the privilege of being an Ivy League student. I think it was very hard to adjust to that life of saying, well, you go from being someone who's fighting for a chance to prove yourself to now having all these people tell you that you're a genius and and. Uh, so a lot of what I, the, the natural reaction I had to that was to take what I was learning uh, as a law student and as a lawyer and apply that to the lives of people who were struggling. It, it, I mean, partly I hope that it was to make a positive impact in the lives of others, but also it was, to be real with you, a way to just cope with my privilege, to say, I don't, I don't know what to do with this, yeah. so I just want to share it with as many people as I can. I don't know what else to do. It... it it was very difficult to sit in, in, a, in a classroom at Yale and feel comfortable and feel like, you know, if you have the chance to connect people with resources and to make sure that people in positions of power understand the needs of people who are not as empowered, yeah. um, then you should be doing that. Like, why are you sitting in a classroom reading about contracts from, you know, the 1800s, right? Like, that was my, that was how I felt. And, and the way to deal with that and, and reconcile those feelings was to become... I guess what you might call a community organizer or a youth activist or just get out in the neighborhoods and say, well, I've learned how to be an empowered person in our society. Let me try to help other people do the same. And that's different from being a lawyer. Like, I, I never really wanted to be a lawyer once I learned that it's not necessarily the best way to empower people. Like, we need good lawyers. That's certainly not, I'm not denigrating the profession at all. But what I mean is that it's, I want to be someone who can help people understand how to even talk to a lawyer, what a lawyer does, what is the, the broader kind of context that a lawyer is operating in. That was the kind of empowerment I got mm -hmm. that I w wanted to help more and more people get. Yeah. yeah. I'm tempted to ask you about the city of New Haven, but I will save that <laughs> uh, if we have time. Sure. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead to sort of talk about your interest in how people get radicalized. Okay. Um, and the similarities that you sort of see between 
people sort of getting radicalized through gangster rap to ISIS to anything else. Um, so, you know, you eventually travel to Brussels where you sort of, you're trying to figure out, you know, the lives of the two guys who participated in the Paris attacks mm -hmm. in 2015. I'm going to get there, but before you even go there, sort of going back to your time in Toronto, uh, you're hanging out with friends who are members of the Nation of Islam. Uh, you go to a Louis Farrakhan speech. Uh, you are five percenter at one point. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about that time period? And, and do you see similarities between the Nation of Islam? Like, do you include that as sort of being radicalized, like that as a radical group? That's a great question. So I think of radicalization as being a bit uh, on a spectrum. So you have radical ideologies, some of which can be helpful. I mean, there were times where the idea that being a black man and a white man, that you were equal and deserved the right to vote was considered a, a radical yes. ideology, right? So, but, but on the spectrum, you have radical ideologies, and then you have ideologies that then kind of lean toward promoting violence as a way of acting on those ideas. So the Nation of Islam would be an example where, you know, I would say aside from the assassination of Malcolm X, you could say has not produced very much violence. And in fact, uh, Louis Farrakhan has gone out of his way, I think, to discourage violence. That said, it is promoting an ideology that could very easily be activated toward violence. And I think Malcolm X's death would be an example of that, where when you are promoting hatred and division and using very divisive language, it's easy for people to see each other as enemies. And over time, that boils over. So what Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam have in common with a group like ISIS, for example, is that they both use Islam to promote their version of political conflict. They have attached themselves to a brand that, you know, one and a half billion people in the world believe in to some extent. But they're not really interested in, you know, promoting the moral uh, aspects of Islam or whether what it means for you in terms of your duties to other people or the fact that Islam, like other religions, is mostly a colorblind faith. It's not telling you there are different moral expectations depending on what your skin color is or where your ancestors are from. But it is telling you that, you know, you should identify with Islam because they want to equate Islam with being anti-Western, right? And so to the extent that, you know, radicalization in the way I use it is to say in this context to make hating the world around you an acceptable idea and then to fill the voids when you reject the world around you with visions of a utopia, right? That if you join this group, somehow your life is going to become perfect. That's, to me, what, what these things have in common. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I found it fascinating, your description of going to hear Louis Farrakhan with a close friend yeah. and his friends. And it's literally, it's almost like you come back and you've heard two different speeches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, well, he's like, you know, you know, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, and you're like, that's BS. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing. Like, when I, when I, you know, the research I did where you're looking at, like, what do ISIS kind of street preachers say to these young Muslim boys in Europe? Or even, what does a white supremacist say on the Internet to a group of white boys? I mean, what they're, the message they're trying to get across is, you're unhappy, right? That's a given. You're unhappy with your life. You're unhappy with the way you're treated. You're unhappy with the way people you identify with are treated. And... You should blame the world around you, blame America, blame Canada, blame Europe, right? Be mad at these countries and almost find this, like, completely fictionalized alternative reality where somehow these problems don't exist anymore. Yeah. And that is the promise. So when you, you know, what was similar between me and my friend of the Nation of Islam is that we were both angry. We were both unhappy with how things were going. Yeah. I just didn't buy into the alternative reality that Louis Farrakhan is selling. And, and I don't think it's all that different from the alternative reality of an ISIS or the white supremacists that find these guys on the Internet. I mean, what they're trying to preach is that whatever you're unhappy about somehow disappears if you just ascribe to my ideology and fight for some alternative future yeah. where people of your particular faith or race are on top. Yeah. And then if you're on top, 
then these problems don't exist anymore. Yeah. Then all the tensions between human beings and the prejudices that we have and the class divisions that we have and the biases and all of that somehow disappears yeah. when your people are on top. Yeah. And that, I mean, that is a, I mean, I, it's, it's a fiction, of course, but it's one that, I mean, is very compelling to a, an angry and frustrated young man. Yeah. What did you learn from your trip to Brussels? Well, I mean, a lot of what I, I, a few things. So one is that immigration and integration in Europe has been uh, an abysmal failure. Um, I think that, you know, there are, there are specific policies that have been come under the veil of secularism. So, for example, refusing people who wear um, uh, religious attire to work as teachers or police officers. And, it's, and, and, you know, it's sold as an idea to promote secularism. We don't want to uh, mix church and state. Yeah, yeah. But what that does is if you're from a Jewish community, a Sikh community, a Muslim community, even if you're a Christian who wears a cross around your neck, um, it's signaling to you that you can't participate in your society like everyone else. And those are the kinds of ideas that have just been so destructive in Europe that I think people don't fully appreciate that, that the, the way that sets the tone yeah. for someone from outside of your country coming in and saying, see, your country doesn't want you here. Yeah. They don't like you. Yeah. They don't embrace you. Join my movement where we're going to get revenge on your country, right? I mean, yeah. that's how you weaponize these grievances. And I think that Europe has had a really, really hard time with, with, with its own national identity. And a consequence of that is it's almost like they're building an identity that's based on exclusion. Well, if we exclude all these other people, then somehow that means we mean something. Yeah. And that's just not how that works. So that was one thing that I learned. Also, what I learned is that the intersection of petty crime and radicalization is, is very, very powerful. Um, prisons in Europe are a breeding ground for jihadists. And a lot of the jihadists who wind up joining ISIS had a background in petty crime. They went to jail for stealing a car or, you know, selling marijuana. Uh, they go in and they wind up being kind of consuming this propaganda. I think that intersection is important because part of what I'm trying to get people to understand is why would a young man like who is appealing to, who, who is drawn to gangs in inner city America, yeah. for example, what can he learn from the experience of a young man in Europe, yeah. right? And drawing those parallels is important because part of what I'm trying to challenge is the idea that these are somehow like pathological traits of a particular sub subgroup, right? Yeah. Which is a very dangerous idea that is operated under the surface of a lot of this conversation that somehow black Americans or Muslim Europeans are predestined to have these problems because of, you know, some people even say it's biology, but some would say culture or whatever the case. And, and while culture is relevant, it's actually, I think, a culture that's created by a variety of broader factors that everyone is connected to as opposed to something that can be uniquely placed on the shoulders of some minority group where you're saying, well, this is your problem. We don't have to worry about it. Well, that's why I love how you bring in Charlottesville and the alt-right. Um, you know, so the same radicalization, neo-Nazis can happen sort of anywhere. Yeah. Part of the, I think part of the thing that I struggle with is you do a great job of, uh, you know, sort of showing like, okay, here are some of the ingredients that you see across the board that sort of, um, you know, facilitate radicalization. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, part of me is still thinking, yeah, but the, the, it's such a small fraction of the people who actually get radicalized. And, and yeah. through, reading your book, I kept thinking, and I'll, I'll say I have family members who are Jehovah Witnesses, but I keep thinking, you know, the Jehovah Witnesses knock on a lot of doors. Yep. Most people shut the door. A few people open them. If, if you still can't, those are people growing up in the same neighborhood. It's just yep. like, almost like, why are some people opening the door? And yeah. are you any closer to figure out, like, why some people well, open the door and yeah. other people, like... It's a, it's a great question. I think a lot of it really... A lot of it is about, you know, kind of timing, right? So, for example, a lot of the young men who wind up in the most far-flung places ideologically are young men who, at the time they interacted with a recruiter or a propagandist or an older man who wanted to mentor them into a criminal network, it, they were going through some sort of trauma, right? They lost their mom or they... Um, you know, their, 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 their sister uh, was um, kind of had a falling out with their parents or, you know, something that kind of made them 
particularly distraught and then vulnerable to someone who's selling them on a utopia, some vision of a, of a perfect world. So I think that, that in terms of who opens the door, sometimes it's just about what happened to you that day, right? Are you, do you need a friend that day? Well, then you open the door and the Jehovah's Witness might be the friend you need in that moment. Um, and hopefully, I mean, let's be clear, Jehovah's Witnesses are not promoting a, an ideology that I would yes, say are, yes. are, it For needs, the to, yeah, needs to be opposed at all. But just using your analogy, yes. right? It's like, well, why do people open the door? Yeah. And I think a lot of it is about things that are hard to standardize. It's a lot of it is about the personal circumstances, which is partly why efforts to solve this problem that are trying to operate on a bigger scale, right? Like some sort of like national or international response to these things. Yeah. I generally think don't work because of how localized and specific these issues are. Like, if you want to push back against radicalization, a lot of it is about the relationships that exist in a community. And when you see it, when someone opens that door, do they have the support to make sure that they're not kind of fully bought in and, and immersed in that world that, that's on the other side? Or are they uh, subject to um, you know, such little support that whoever opens is on the other side of that door is everything that they've been looking right. for, right? I mean, which, that's the... Which is sort of how you conclude. It's all building up to having more sort of youth leaders in communities. Yes. Working yeah. with young people, especially young men. Yeah. I, I'm going to ask you about that, but I have to ask you about Black Lives Matter. Because sure, you yeah, really, yeah. You really go after Black Lives Matter in this book. <laughs> sure, okay. Uh, it's like, you know, uh, it's brave. Of you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny because that's a part of the book that I probably received the most kind of pushback on. Almost, almost like you're saying they're another radical group. Um, you know, well, on they, the are, they, they are a radical group, yes. But, uh, and I think they would also self-identify as radical, I mean, to be honest. But, I think, they'd say radical in a good way. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I suppose that's in the eye of the beholder, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of these groups we're talking about also think of themselves as being radical in a good way. Um, my, my, the challenge, though, I, I, I try to pose to Black Lives Matter or people who support them is how are they actually helping resolve any of the problems that I describe, right? I um, take issue with kind of all forms of what I would call, like, let's say, essentializing people, right? So um, one of the kind of common threads in everything we're talking about is they a lot of these movements rest on being able to say to a young person, there is an authentic way to be a Muslim or a white person or a black person. And when you claim that sort of authenticity, you're claiming a lot of power because you're trying to define who people are supposed to be, right? Black Lives Matter, by the nature of invoking race in the way they do in their activism, and then linking that to what I would say are pretty fringe political ideas. I mean, honestly, the policy platform they came out with in 2016 would make Bernie Sanders look like Ronald Reagan. I mean, it is, it's not mainstream politics. And it's especially, I would say, not representative of even the black Democratic base, which is, by and large, a very moderate and, and socially conservative group of people. Right. So the idea that you're going to take this identity, uh, uh, insert a whole bunch of political baggage into it, and then think that black people who are affected by that box, right? Yeah. Like, like this black police officer I write about yeah. who is out here trying to make changes that I think any sensible person would say are better than the status quo. Might not be perfect, but better than the status quo. Yeah. And you, he is now operating in a world where he's seen as less authentic by news media and criticized for it because he's not operating the Black Lives Matter box, right? I am also a black person who doesn't operate in that box. And I, as a person now who's in the public square, right? I'm a writer, I'm talking about these ideas. I don't like that I get criticized because I'm not repeating far-left talking points that are not shared by most black people, and yet somehow that impression has been created because you have this very well-funded network of black activists who are not representative of anyone. They've never been elected. They've never been voted. But news media props them up as if they're voices of a community, and I think that's incredibly frustrating. So, so I, I would love... I mean, I, 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 would, I would love to sort of... Uh... Being an audience member as you're debating a member <laughs> of Black Lives Matter. I'd be, I'd be happy to. I, I just, I'm just going to go out on a limb and sort of... Sure. I, I could imagine one response to your criticism about they're not elected is, well, we, we have so much sort of disenfranchisement in this country that 
uh, an elected official isn't going to represent the community anyway. Like maybe they represent communities better than any elected official but, can. But so, so I guess like my challenge but, but would be. Trust me, I'm not here to represent Black Lives yeah, Matter. No, 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 I'm just no, no. Like, I, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm not assuming you are. I'm just saying. Well, but like the question becomes like, well, what is the what is the determination of representation, right? Like who gets to walk around saying, well, this is what's in the best interest of Black people, or this was in the best interest of women, or this was in the best interest of men. I mean, even in a book like mine. I invoke young men as an identity in the title. I'm at risk of repeating the exact same mistake that I'm criticizing Black Lives Matter for. And I think if you read, read my book, as I know you have, I think that it would be hard to go in there and say that I'm prescribing any sort of political ideology that men are supposed to have, other than don't hurt people, right? Look after your family, be responsible to the people around you. Whether that means you're a Democrat or a Republican or you want socialized health care or free market, I don't... I'm not telling you you're supposed to believe any of that. That is up for every young man to make his own decisions, right? There's a universal morality that I'm trying to promote, which is like what it means to be a good person. And I think that is at the core of every good movement that this country has ever produced. Abolition, uh, civil rights movement. It's at the core has been there is a definition of what good means, and whether you're black or white, that what, what it means to be good is the same. This idea, though, of putting forward a black identity and then trying to shame and bully and push people around who don't echo your political priorities as if somehow that makes you less black. That I have massive problems with. And I'm sure there are individual Black Lives Matter activists who don't think that's what they're doing. They would say, well, I'm not trying to essentialize black people. I'm not trying. And, and I'm sure that's not their intention. But this is exactly why identity politics is an issue. You're claiming to be the people who know what it looks like to think black lives matter. So if I disagree with you, what does that make me? Do I not think black lives matter because I don't think that um, being anti-Israel is, is in the best interest of anyone, right? I mean, like that, that's an example of an idea that they, they promote, right? And I'm not anti-Israel. And I think a lot of people in this country are not. So does it mean to, to be anti-Israel is to believe black lives matter? No. So maybe don't invoke my identity in your politics in the first place. And I think that's the message I'm trying to get across. Because in practice, what that does is it puts those of us who are outside of that box in a vulnerable position to be criticized as less authentic. The cops among us, the teachers among us, the politicians among us, the conservatives among us, the preachers among us, who don't share the Black Lives Matter agenda in many cases, are somehow, what, what we, we don't think Black Lives Matter now? Of course we do. As I said, I would love to see a debate between you and some Black Lives I, I'd be Matter activists. I, I, I would just want to be a fly on the wall. So, <laughs> so we have about a one, a one minute to go. Um, before, so I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to turn to what we can do um, to sort of at least try to stem radicalization, stem uh, excessive violence. So this goes from gang members to ISIS to any to white nationalists. All of this. What can we do? So parents, what can parents do? What can society um, or politicians do? And I know I'm asking a lot. And like one final question, but since I'm a law professor and you <laughs> went to Yale Law School, uh, what can law do? There's a there's an absence of law in your book, and is that because law is pretty much impotent in this area? And I, I'm, you're nodding, I'm going to assume, laws. <laughs> so what, no, what no, can I, the rest of us do? Yeah, I, 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 I'm certainly not saying law is impotent, although I do think that um, a lot of the problems I write about, I don't, I'm not sure there's a clear law and policy answer. I think law and policy can harm in some cases. I'm not sure it can always help. So, for example, I think that incarcerating as many people as you do is a horrible idea. And laws like the First Step Act and, and other reform efforts are really important to reducing the negative effect of the justice system. So any politician listening, I would say the bipartisan push to reform justice has only begun. I hope it continues and goes much further, especially when it comes to supporting people who are coming out of prison, who I think need a lot of, to deal with the trauma that being part of that system creates uh, in you. And since a lot of those people are fathers, there's going to be a multi-generational effect to all of that, and that is a really important policy area that's worth looking at. Uh, and it's something I write about in the book because I think it's really important. Um, but the law is limited. A lot of this is culture. A lot of this is about how we treat each other, how, um, the responsibility we take for ourselves and for the people in our communities and in our families. I think as parents, one of the biggest piece of pieces of advice I could give is understand what Internet culture is and build bridges between 
internet communication and in-person communication. So what I mean by that is every example where you wind up with a radicalized young man or young men drawn to crime where the internet has been involved, you invariably see the adults in that young man's life say, we had no idea what he was doing on the internet. We didn't know he was talking to these people. We didn't know he made these friends. We didn't know he was on Instagram trying to buy guns. We didn't understand what he was up to. And that's a shame because the internet in many cases matters more to how a young man sees himself and his peer group than the in-person communication does. So if I could make one suggestion to parents would be make it practice to talk about what's going on online. When you see your child, regardless of age, on the phone, on Instagram, on Twitter, whatever it might be, have conversations about that. What are they reading? What are they talking about? And make sure that you're helping them make sense of what they're seeing on social media because that is a world that is full of a lot of horrible stuff as much as it is full of any good stuff. And being able to understand how do I put value into different things? Which of these influencers on Instagram should I be caring about what they think? And who should I not be listening to? And that is an exercise that my generation, who is starting to become parents and, 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 and having children who are looking at these things, we need to take that especially seriously because I think we understand that well. But the parents who are ahead of us, people who are in the generation of, between mine and my mom's, let's say, I think that's a problem that they might not feel as important, but they really need to take seriously. So, And I write about the, the way social media and the internet is affecting these things because I do think that that is a key element to what makes the young men of today different than the young men of previous generations. Jamil, thank you so much. This has been incredible. Um, again, I love the book, Why Young Men. Thank you for talking to me. Yeah, thank you.